The National Geographic Channel will air two naked science programs that you may wish to see. The first is titled Alien Earths, and we'll discuss the recent advances in astronomy that are turning up planets orbiting other stars that are similar to Earth. The second is titled Hawking's Universe, and we'll view the holy grail of physics, the theory of everything. Einstein failed to work it out, but Stephen Hawking has continued his quest. We're delighted to welcome to the program National Geographic spokesman Seth Shostak to talk about these specials and more. Dr. Shostak is the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, and we might add a man who's long been on our short list of desired guests for this program. He's well qualified to talk about these topics, and we're delighted to have the opportunity to pick his brain. Seth Shostak, welcome to Radio Parallax. Thank you very much, Doug. Now, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has a famous equation associated with it. Can you, can you talk about the Drake equation, and in particular, how in recent years it seems more favorable to the SETI quest concerning the number of planets that we reckon are orbiting other stars? You know, whenever you talk about the equations, most people, you know, their <laughs> eyes glaze over like donuts. You know, they're not so keen on that. But this is really a very simple thing. It was actually uh, cooked up by Frank Drake, thus the name, the Drake Equation, back in 1961 as an agenda for a meeting. So it wasn't even really, you know, a mathematical exercise. And all he was trying to do was say, look, we're, we're trying to eavesdrop on signals coming from other societies out there in the galaxy. How many societies are there out there that are broadcasting? So... Obviously, that depends on how many stars there are and what fraction of those stars have planets and what fraction of those planets have cooked up life and what fraction of those have cooked up intelligent life that can build radio transmitters and how long are they on the air. Anyway, those are, you know, the terms of the Drake Equation. There are actually seven terms, but pretty much what I said. And nobody knows what those, I mean, the value of those terms might be, but the equation is very useful in, in at least discussing the question, the problem. Now, what has happened in the last couple of years is we've learned something more about some of those terms, namely what fraction of stars have planets. And the answer to that, by the way, is that, you know, probably most of them do. So, you know, there have been no showstoppers in the equation or in our research that suggests that we don't have co uh, cosmic company. The chances are looking pretty good that there's plenty of life out there and some of it may even be clever. Well, in preparation for this talk, I looked up uh, the recent catalog we have, and, and my God, it's like we now have hundreds of planets that we know about, and I guess four different star systems, and the number seems to be growing exponentially. You know, there are lots of star systems. There are more than 300 star systems have, uh, have planets. Uh, the total number of planets is, I think it's above 350 today, but you've got you know, you to know whether you're asking before lunch or after lunch, because <laughs> you know, the number just keeps going up. But actually, that's not the interesting thing. I mean, it, yeah, yes, it's interesting, but what you want to know is not how many planets have we found. The question you really want to answer is, well, of all the stars out there, what fraction actually have planets? And how many of those planets are sort of cousins of the Earth, you know, planets that might have liquid oceans, thick atmospheres that might, you know, be the kind of place you might want to call home? We don't know the answer to that, but the Kepler mission just recently launched by NASA is going to answer that question, and they're going to do it in the next thousand days, the next three years. So, you know, we're going to learn something in the next thousand days that humanity has probably thought about for who knows how long and that we've never been able to answer before. Namely, you know, are there other worlds out there that are sort of like the Earth? And, and we'll know the answer. We will know the answer to that, uh, as I say, within three years. Well, we're living in exciting times, but... Uh... Well, we're looking for Earths. We're finding a lot of other bizarre planets, uh, some of them big as uh, Jupiter and hot as Mercury. Can you talk about some of these, these strange worlds we've, uh, we've, we've discovered? Right, it, exactly. Well, the big surprise, when they first uh, started finding planets around other stars, in 1995 it was, actually, was that they were planets quite 
unlike the ones in our own solar system, the ones we've known about for, you know, probably 100,000 years because you could see them. All right. they, they were, you know, what are called hot Jupiters, big planets, giant, humongous planets, very, very close to their stars, going around their stars, not in 365 days the way we do, but, you know, in just a couple of days, things like that. Other worlds that have uh, cropped up in the hunt for planets, also very unusual. And giant egg-shaped orbits that bring them very close to their sun, and they're very far from their sun. And in this uh, TV show, Alien Earth, that's uh, going to be shown on National Geographic Channel, they have used computer animation to actually take you to some of these worlds. So, you know, you can actually see what they look like up close. Now, of course, you know, it's somewhat theoretical, but, but it, it's all conforming to the science. So you see worlds where it's so hot that, you know, you have a rain of liquid iron. You see other worlds that are just perpetually frozen. You see worlds that are made mostly of carbohydrates that looks like a, you know, an oil refinery that's gone bust, and there are lakes of benzene and methane and things like that. So it's all pictured in this, in this show. It makes it for very interesting viewing, of course. Well, uh, we should add probably, too, that we're getting closer and closer to finding a planet no larger than, than our own, but being the right size doesn't necessarily make it habitable. It's got to be in the right place, too. Yeah, and, and, you know, obviously, if we were a little closer to the sun, Earth would have a different climate. If we were a little farther from the sun, it'd have maybe a, a climate that wouldn't support life. You want to be in what's called, kind of informally, the Goldilocks zone, right? <laughs> uh, not too close, not too far. Uh, on the other hand, if you're around a star that puts out a lot less light than the sun, and, and by the way, that's the majority of stars, uh, then you can afford to be a little bit closer and still be in the Goldilocks zone. So the Goldilocks zone depends a little bit on, on, on your sun, but... You know, there, there may be a million, million planets in our galaxy. That's probably the right number. Million, million, a trillion, in other words. You know, most of them aren't going to be in the Goldilocks zone, but gosh, you know, some of them will be. I mean, imagine a million, million lottery tickets. Uh, some of them are going to be winners. <laughs> well, I, 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 I gather, too, that we're closing in on some planets out there that seem to have been hurled away from their parent stars and are out drifting by themselves. Uh, how do you find a planet like that? You know, if you can tell me how to do that, Doug, I, I think that I'll... <laughs> I'll get tenure somewhere. I mean, that's, uh, that's indeed a, a really tough problem. I mean, the reason we think that these sort of orphan planets are out there, planets that have somehow escaped their solar systems, probably when the solar systems were very, very young, when they were just being formed, and they got kicked out for bad behavior, uh, <laughs> you know, these, these guys, they're wandering the cold, dark depths of the galaxy and uh, with no sun, you know, to, to pay allegiance to. How do you find these guys? Of course, they're very, very dark. They're very dim. There's no sunlight falling on them, right? Just some starlight. They're not necessarily dead because they have internal heat, so they might still have some sort of life, probably bacterial life or something like that. It's also depicted in this uh, TV show. And, you know, the calculations, and these are calculations, but they're probably reliable, suggest that there are undoubtedly more of those kinds of planets, the orphan planets, than there are planets that, you know, have uh, siblings and are hugging a star somewhere. So... There are undoubtedly, uh, you know, billions and billions of these guys, to, to quote a, a famous astronomer, but, you know, it's, it, nobody's ever found one yet. Well, uh, you know, just we talk about how you have to be in the right place around a star to, to be habitable. I know that in recent years a lot of people have felt that we need to look at our galaxy, particularly in related to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and note that they refer to our sun as kind of this nothing little star. It's orbiting out in the sticks somewhere, but it, I guess it turns out that's probably a pretty good thing if you want to have life uh, on a planet. Well, there are people who do make this argument that the galaxy has sort of no-go zones, you know, <laughs> no man's land, no alien's land, where, uh, you, know, you know, if your star system is in this part of the galaxy, you're probably toast. <laughs> uh, I'm, not sure I, I'm not sure I buy this. Actually. Okay. There are some, 
some places in the galaxy that are clearly off limits. I mean, the, the very center of the galaxy, there's a giant black hole there, and there's you know all sorts of dramatic stuff going on, and you know you'd be bathed with radiation that would kill you right away, and so forth and so on. But you know that's a tiny, tiny little fraction of the galaxy. It doesn't really amount to much real estate. It's like a postage stamp, you know, on a continent kind of thing. But there, there are other big regions of the galaxy where some people say, look, the problem here is you're going to get new stars being formed every couple of million years, and some of them will be big stars that explode in a big supernova and just ruin your whole day if you're living <laughs> nearby. Uh, you know, there, there's some truth to that, but it's unclear whether that really means that those parts of the, of the uh, universe would be sterile, because one thing we've learned in studying life, particularly in the last 10 or 20 years, is that it's very tough. I mean, you know, there are microbes that can just take conditions that you and I would find really unpleasant, and they, and they can survive. So, you know, I'm, it, I, I think it's a little too conservative to say those places are going to be sterile. Well, of course, the, the search for life uh, is, is not the same as the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and yet the two are so, so much uh, in, intertwined. And I note that we've seen some fascinating data right here in our own solar system of late that uh, makes us think that, well, things might be better off out there than we, than we knew before. Well, it is true. Uh, we've, we've learned, uh, again, you know, the last dozen years or so, most of it anyhow, that uh, there are another maybe six or seven worlds in our own solar system that might have liquid water. I mean, we didn't know that. Uh, we, we thought maybe Mars was habitable, but then we sent, you know, landers to Mars in the 1970s, and it was just this dry, you know, awful freezing desert. But now we seem to think that if you could just send Bruce Willis to Mars with <laughs> a drilling rig, and you know, at least you get rid of Bruce Willis, and, and you know, go down a couple of hundred feet, uh, you might find liquid water there. But Mars isn't the only place. There are the moons of Jupiter, moons of Saturn, uh, even Venus's atmosphere. These are all places where there might be some liquid water. And uh, what the hey, you know, liquid water is always said to be the thing you need, the essential ingredient for life. Doesn't mean that you have life, but it's hard to believe that all these these places have a lot of liquid water and it's just all sterile. And I read too just yesterday, fresh from the headlines, looking at some uh, some some dust brought back from a, from a comet. We're finding some glycine, an amino acid precursor to life, and kind of an exciting thing to find out in space. Yeah, well, that's that's kind of an ongoing story. Every time we look at the crud that's left over, uh, you know, from the birth of our sun uh, in our solar system, and that's to say, you know, bits and pieces of comets and asteroids. Uh, very often, they have organic materials in them. Now, organic, you know, to a chemist, all that means is it's got a bunch of carbon in it. Okay, but, you know, we're carbon-based life forms, and some of these things, amino acids, right? That's a building block of proteins, which, of course, are, are the building blocks of life. So, you know, it, it seems that the universe, any star system, is just going to have lots and lots of these chemicals hanging around. That doesn't mean they have, li uh, you know, they have life, but it's sort of like finding that bricks are really common in the universe. <laughs> so you, maybe it's not so surprising to, to expect that there might be some buildings to... <laughs> Well, Dr. Shostak, you've been intimately involved with the SETI Institute, I know, for a while, and you folks are not so far from us down in Mountain View. Uh, I know you're also getting by on a fairly fairly modest budget. Have you got some new tools you're working with? We are, yeah. We're building the Allen Telescope Array, and that's up in Hat Creek. So uh, I don't know if many of the listeners know where that is, but you just go up uh, you know, Interstate 5 till you get to Redding, make a right turn for about an hour and a quarter, and you can go to the observatory there at Hat Creek. You can visit it during the week. It's open. You can just go on in, and they'll be happy to show you around. Uh, there are 42 antennas there, and that has been made possible by Paul Allen, who is the co-founder of uh, Microsoft Corporation, of course. He's given the money for that. You know, it's all privately funded, and that's the, that's the difficulty with SETI research in this country today, that it's, you know, it's privately funded, and it's hard to, hard to raise the 
the modest amounts of money it takes to do this uh, this research. But that that telescope, which consists of lots of small antennas, will greatly speed up the search, and that's what we really need now. You're going to find them. You don't want to wait a, a thousand years or even a hundred years before you you succeed. If you want to succeed within a generation, you need a new telescope, and that's what this project's all about. Well, the history of SETI has, has, I think, rather famously had some false alarms, and I, I think one fairly recently. I read an article not so long ago that talked about there's one intriguing signal. I think it called the WOW event. At the time of the article, it was still a mystery. And I'm really curious, has that mystery been resolved? Nope, never has been. That was 1977 in the Ohio State Radio Observatory in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, they picked up a signal, and it was so strong that when the the astronomer, Jerry Amon was his name. He came in the next morning, and he was looking through the computer printout, because in those days it was all done on computer printout. And he sees this really big signal, and he writes with a magic marker, wow, next. <laughs> so it became known as the wow signal. But this is the triumph of, of marketing, perhaps, over product. I, I don't know, because there have been, been lots and lots of signals that were found that nobody knew what they were uh, in the old days. These days, what, what you do is if you find a signal, you immediately go back and try and check it out, or you, know, you have some plan to check it out. And when you can check them out, then they all go away. They all turn out to be, you know, interference of some sort. We don't know about the WOW signal. People have looked at it over and over and over again. We've never seen it again. So take your choice. Maybe it was E.T. and then he went on vacation. Or, you know, it was some sort of interference and uh, you're not going to see it again. Uh, I think that, you know, as a scientist, you have to say, look, I, I never saw it again. So I don't know what it was, but I can't claim that it's E.T. on that basis. I was very amused seeing one, another interview you did uh, fairly recently where you talked about, uh, about the fact that, you know, if you, if, if you find something that's really interesting, the, the word sort of leaks out, and that people, you were being asked, well, are you going to have to keep it secret? And with this idea, like, there's a, there's a red phone in the SETI Institute that you might call the president with. Yeah, right. I wish I, oh, I, <laughs> wish I knew where that red phone was. All the phones I have, I have access to are these dull gray plastic ones. Uh, no, you know... Uh, that's what people do assume. They assume that if we found a signal, immediately we'd start calling, well, name your, <laughs> name your poison. Some people think we would call the president. Other, things we, other people think we'd call the CIA. I, you know, whatever. The U.N. Uh, actually, yeah. yeah, the U.N., the CIA, <laughs> something like that. I, in fact, I can tell you what happens, because we occasionally do have false alarms when we think, you know, this might be it. What happens is that they call us, not, not the president, not the CIA, not even the mayor of Mountain View, and, and certainly not the <laughs> governor, the media calls. That's what happens, actually. The, the newspapers, of course, I mean, there's no, no secrecy here. So they start calling you right away, and uh, they want to know, well, what, what's the deal, right? So, in fact, we will still not even know what the deal is, and, and they'll be writing stories because it'll take us days to decide, is this really it or not? And all that time, they're just writing stories about, well, these guys have an interesting signal, and they're trying to check it out. So you'll read about it that way first. You know, I know that you mentioned uh, searching a, a, uh, for a million, million uh, planets here in... Um in the Milky Way galaxy, but could you could SETI detect signals from other galaxies as well? Well, they would need really a honking transmitter for that <laughs> to be the case. You know, if they, if they had such a thing, I mean, it's not, you know, it doesn't violate physics, but it's really, really, really got to be powerful. Uh, either that or they need a giant antenna. I mean, when I say giant, an antenna the size of the United States or more that, uh, you know, could focus it in our direction. And you gotta, you got to wonder, your, you know, what would be the motivation to send a signal to a, a galaxy that might be millions of light years away, and you could only expect a response, you know, millions and millions of years later. I mean, it's not inconceivable. It could be that, uh, you know, biological life gives way to uh, artificial intelligence. That's probably what's going to happen here. And, uh, you know, for artificial intelligence, waiting a few million years or a few hundred million years, for that matter, for an answer is not beyond uh, consideration. They might think, what the heck? 
when you live forever, you know, it doesn't take any time to wait for that. So, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe. And a few SETI experiments have looked at other galaxies, but it doesn't seem to be the preferred approach. Well, let's talk about Stephen Hawking. One of your two specials that you're, you'll be talking about, or you'll be showing on National Geographic Channel is related to, to Dr. Hawking. Uh, this theory, trying to unify gravity, time, and space, and quantum physics uh, has eluded all the great minds in science. Do you think Stephen Hawking might be able to unlock this mystery? Well, I mean, he's one of the brightest minds going these days. So, you know, if our brains, our little <laughs> three-pound brains, <laughs> are capable of doing this, and I, and I think they are, actually. I, I think he's got a better shot than most. Now, mind you, what normally happens in these sorts of deals is that you've got, you know, really thousands of physicists who are trying to find the TOE, the theory of everything, and when you have thousands, you know, some racehorse you didn't think about might, might be the winner, not the favorite. But I think that Hawking is among the favorites, and he's been steeped in this problem for a long time. So, uh, you know, I, I guess I'd give him pretty good odds for solving it. It's, it's unclear whether anybody in this generation is going to do that, of course. It might be that it's a very difficult thing to solve. But the best contender these days is probably string theory, and a lot of people are working on that. Well, we're running out of time, but uh, before we leave this uh, interesting discussion, I just have to ask you, because I know a lot of people are very interested by this prospect of extraterrestrial life. Unfortunately, uh, many seem to associate it with flying saucers, and uh, I, I share your skepticism, but could you, could you tell us why you think we can discount UFOs as, as visitors from other worlds? Yeah, well, a lot of people think that we are being visited, but I, I honestly think that if that were true, this is, this is my objection uh, to that, you know, not in principle. I mean, it's possible they could come here. It's not easy. It's very, very difficult to go from one star system to another with a big saucer ship. I mean, you just work out the physics of that, and it's really hard. But, you know, it, it, it's conceivable. The thing is, if you're going to make that claim, then you need something better as evidence than the kinds of photos and videos that I've seen and the eyewitness descriptions, because eyewitness testimony is very, very unreliable. I mean, if you're in a murder trial, you know, you don't want to be sent to the chair because some guy says, Yes, he did it. I saw him. He looks like the guy who did it. That's, you know, that's witness testimony. You really need physical evidence. You're going to send somebody to the chair. Well, we're not talking about sending anybody to the chair here, but it's such a, a remarkable claim if we're being visited that I think that for scientists to believe it, you need something more than a lot of people saying, I saw this thing and it moved so fast, it must be E.T. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of things, you know, a lot of things that could be an explanation that don't have anything to do with E.T. So, you know, until the evidence gets good, I have to say I'm very skeptical. Well, I guess Carl Sagan once said extraordinary claims uh, require extraordinary evidence. But, uh, I think he said that. He wasn't the first to say it. Right, but, right, right, but, right. But he did say it, and he's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Dr. Shostak, we look forward to these National Geographic specials. Uh, my final question would be that with all these things changing out in astronomy, uh, what data that's on these shows uh, do you find most surprising versus what we knew, say, just a couple decades ago? Well, I don't know. I've watched both shows, and they're both very interesting. I, you know, I kind of like the human element in the Hawking, uh, Hawking's Universe show. You know, you get to see Stephen Hawking. You also get to see his daughter, who's very lovely, Lucy Hawking. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so this is a real person. This isn't just, you know, some automaton there in Cambridge. Uh, that's interesting. But to me, I think the most interesting things was, uh, were the depictions of these very strange worlds in alien Earth, worlds that, you know, you know intellectually these things exist. But to see them in front of you, sort of animated, literally animated, I, that was a real kick for me. I, you know, you could just picture these things are out there. These things are really out there. And uh, it, it, it's not science fiction, even though it looks like science fiction. Well, I'll be tuning in. Uh, Seth Shostak is the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute and a spokesman for the National Geographic show Naked Science. 
They will air two programs this Sunday starting at 9 p.m., Alien Earths and Hawking's Universe. Thank you for speaking with us, Seth Shostak. It's been a real pleasure, Doug. And I hope you visit us again, and maybe when we're in the Bay Area, we might be able to drop into the Institute. It looks like a, sounds like it'd be an interesting place. It would be. Bring your recorder. <laughs> <laughs> will do. Thanks. Bye. Just a reminder that, uh, as sometimes happened, we tracked that program before the airing of the National Geographic special. We, we actually interviewed him some hours before it aired. We, we couldn't get it to you in time. Unfortunate, but um, no doubt the programming is out there. No doubt it will be aired again, and when it does, we certainly recommend you take it in. It was pretty good. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned for more 